Turning your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 3. Uh, while you're turning there, let me sort of remind you of uh, where we are, what we're doing. We started last week on, uh, what a terrible sound as a plastic bottle comes out of that shelf down here. Uh, we started last week uh, a five-week series on um, battle cries, bumper stickers of the Reformation um, those five sort of phrases that came out of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, and last Sunday being Reformation Sunday, we started the series. Then last week we looked at sola scriptura, uh, the doctrine, the idea of scripture alone. Uh, this morning we will look at uh, sola gratia, grace alone, uh, from Romans chapter 3. Beginning in verse 9, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word together. Uh, So if you're able, let me ask you to do that now. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, to whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in and through and among us now through this, your word. That you would prick our consciences, that you would point us to Christ, and that you would conform us more and more into his image. For it's in his name that we ask it. 
Amen. You may be seated. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the uh, evangelism explosion uh, evangelism method. It's, a, it's an evangelism method that really is based primarily on asking people two questions. Uh, the first being, if you died tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Uh, the second is the one that fits for this passage and our, and our purposes this morning. The second question uh, is this, if you died tonight and stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Quick, I mean, don't say it, but in your head, you're thinking your answer right now. I mean, in, in your mind, you're thinking some sort of an answer. It's amazing how many people... Um, when asked that question, or for that matter, if they want to join Grace Covenant Church, if they want to join any PCA church for that matter, part of the process is going to be people asking you why you think you're a Christian. It's, it's amazing the number of people that point to you know, that time in high school when they went on the youth retreat. And the speaker, I mean, what the speaker said really grabbed their hearts. And they prayed a prayer that night and got saved. Or the time in college when the campus ministry brought in some famous athlete. And at the end of his talk, he had us all bow our heads and close our eyes and raise our hands if we want to be, wanted to, to become a Christian. And I raised my hand back then. It's amazing how in order to answer that question, why should I let you into heaven? How do, I, how do you know that you're a Christian? We point to things that we did way back when. That, that's That's normal. People do that. We want to think that there's something I do to contribute to my salvation. We want to think that we, surely we bring something to the table. Surely I, I, I offer something to God that, that He would love me and accept me and bring me to faith in Christ. We, we point to these, these things in our past. I raised my hand. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. Is that really the right answer? Is that really the, the answer we should give if we stood before God and He said, why should I let you in heaven? Or, for that matter, and okay, if you're not a member at Grace Covenant and are to become one, here, I'll give you the answer. Is that really the answer we want to hear from you? I recognize it's normal. Nicodemus in John 3 did it. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 did it. The Philippian jailer, for that matter, in Acts 16 did it. Uh, to a certain extent, the crowd in Acts 2 after Pentecost did it. They all in some way or another say, well then what should I do? We think there's something we need to do. We're looking for what do I do in order to be saved. There's a problem with that, of course. And the problem is found right here in Romans 3. The problem is 
there's nothing we can do. Or for that matter, we have done something. It's all in the opposite direction. Notice Paul has spent the first couple of chapters of Romans um, making clear that Gentiles and Jews are alike are all under sin. They're all uh, sinful people, both groups of people in the world, Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Um, there's nobody else left. All are sinners. All are guilty of violating God's commands. Everyone is under sin. The entire human race stands condemned before God. And here, he points out in many ways that this, that's not a new thought. Because if you notice, perhaps your Bible has most of verses 10 through 18 kind of inset. It's written differently. It's not written like the rest. And, and part of that is because, at least in the ESV Bible, that's their way of sort of pointing out He's quoting the Old Testament. And, and Paul relies heavily, heavily on the Psalms and on Isaiah. He, he reaches back into the Old Testament to make the exact sort of claim. This isn't a New Testament idea that all are sinners, that all are guilty of violating God's law. And, and you can almost hear Paul's background coming out in this passage. He's had the Harvard Law training of Jerusalem, of first century Judaism. And this sounds almost like those times in, I don't know, Perry Mason, Matlock, those, those trial shows when you watch them on TV and the lawyer kind of gets worked up and they're rattling off questions and statements and, and accusatory things. And really not waiting for the witness to give an answer. That, that's almost what this sounds like to me. Like he's, he's coming with quote after quote after quote after quote. And I, I want to say, but, but, but. And he doesn't give me that chance. He doesn't give me that opportunity. There's no one righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. None of us has any righteousness of our own. None of us by nature has any goodness to offer to God. We lack the very thing we need most for salvation. We lack the very thing we need exclusively to be accepted by God. We must be righteous. We must be holy. And we're far from it. We don't even realize how sinful we are, most likely. We're far more sinful than we ever Imagined, we think too highly of ourselves. There's no one righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Oh, you can you can seek God in an academic sort of sense, like the the show that ABC hosted decades ago, the search for the real Jesus. They didn't want to know Christ. Maybe it was a, an archaeological sort of research show, but it, it wasn't a, I want to know Christ as the Son of God, as the only way of salvation, as the 
Lamb of God as the Redeemer of God's people. No one seeks after God. We've turned aside, become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Isaiah tells us we've turned away like, like sheep. We've turned and gone astray. We'd like to think that we have goodness. We'd like to think we have something to offer God. But even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. I was in college, four guys in an apartment. You, you don't clean often. Um, you put four guys in an apartment, the dishes pile up both sides of the sink. There's a, a dish rag in the sink that sort of sometimes gets used, but it generally spends its time balled up in a corner somewhere, getting wet, sour, never getting any air, starting to stink. Just the, the filth. You, you can imagine that just the filth of Four guys in an apartment with this nasty, smelly dish rag in the corner of the sink. And, and as gross as that is, it's nothing compared to what Isaiah is talking about when our deeds are like filthy rags. The filthiness of a dirty dish rag comes nowhere close to Isaiah's point. We've turned aside. We, no one does good, not even one. Notice the, in the, the next several verses, Paul quotes, again, quoting from the Psalms and Isaiah, and, and notice the, the way he works his way through your body. Their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth, their feet. They run to ruin. He, you've got this head-to-toe sort of image in the verses that he quotes, that he cites. He's kind of covering all of you in a sense. You remember Matthew 15, the, the Pharisees um, fuss at Jesus. They start to rebuke Jesus because um, his disciples weren't washing their hands before they ate. Kids, wash your hands before you eat. Now, having, having said that, but you remember why. Jesus, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's not what goes into you that makes you unclean because what goes into you gets digested and later comes out. The problem isn't what goes into you. The problem is what comes out of you because what comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. It comes from inside of you. See, I think part of our problem is we have the wrong view of sin. We have a very objective view of sin. It's, it's out there. There's a list of things I'm supposed to do. There's a list of things I'm not supposed to do. And when I violate either one of those lists out there, then I'm guilty of sin. Then I'm, I've broken God's commandments. 
the Bible says the problem is sin isn't out there from you. It's in you. It's part of, part of who you are because of the fall. Sin isn't out there. You can't sort of keep it at arm's length. You can't sort of keep it as a, a list of do's and don'ts. Because even when you do all the right things, you do it because people are watching. And they're going to praise you for it. And my sin, my pride has just been revealed. But I did the list. Yeah, you did the list for the praise of man. You did the list because of what it would gain you. At the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church taught, and and technically still does today, that in order to be saved, you need faith and works. You need grace from God, but then you also need to do stuff. You need to, needed to earn um, God's favor through the things that you did. You could um, climb the Scala Sancta, the holy stairs in Rome, and as you did, you prayed on each step. You did this on your knees, of course, and when you got to the top, you earned Indulgences. You could, you could give money to the church to pay for St. Peter's Basilica and, and buy indulgences and therefore shorten either your time or a loved one's time in purgatory. I got bad news for you. For that matter, and they may even listen to this, I probably shouldn't do this, I've got bad news even for my parents. If that were true... I'm not putting money in the coffer for you. I'm going to shorten my time in purgatory. You could could buy indulgences. You could earn favor through things that you did. In fact, for that matter, there were people who supposedly earned so much goodness, who earned so much merit that they had extra. I'm not entirely certain how that works. That you can overdo your responsibility to God in such a way that you have extra. And then, then the Pope, I guess, has like one of those big Tupperware plastic tubs that you keep in your garage with a lid on it. You know, I guess he's got one of those with extra merit, extra good works in it. And, and if you needed some, he could dispense it to you if you needed it. The Bible says we have no good works. Not only do we not have good works, our best deeds are riddled with sin throughout because our hearts and minds are ruined with sin without, throughout. We don't have any good works, much less too many good works. We do, of course, according to this passage, have too many evil deeds. We have too much sin. We've got, we've got a pretty large Tupperware container of that. We have too much wickedness. But we don't have any good works to offer to God. And yet, verse 21, we have no righteousness of our own. In fact, as we just saying, I am all unrighteousness. I, I've got that. And yet, verse 21, 
there is a righteousness that comes from God. There's a, a righteousness that, that He offers me. There's a, a righteousness that replaces my unrighteousness. There's a righteousness that comes from Him. And it's a righteousness that the Law and the Prophets talked about that too. Just as Paul has quoted the Old Testament to talk about our sinfulness, he also sort of points back to the Old Testament again and says, the Law and the Prophets have been talking about this also. They, they, they promise a righteousness that comes from God. They talk about the Law and the Prophets. Moses and, and the Prophets of the Old Testament, they tell us that there is righteousness that comes from God. But it's not a righteousness earned through our obedience. By works of the law, verse 20, no human being will be justified. And yet, verse 24, we are justified. How? By His grace. This idea of being justified, it's a, it's a legal term. It's a, it's a law term. It's to be declared right and just. To be declared not guilty. It doesn't yet make you not guilty. You can, you can go to court anytime. Murderers can go to court and there can be a lack of evidence and they're declared not guilty. They've done it. It doesn't make them not guilty, but it, in the... In the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the state, they're declared to be not guilty. We're justified. We're declared just. We're declared righteous. We're declared not guilty in the eyes of God. But this comes not through law-keeping, not through obedience. We're justified, verse 24, by His grace as a gift. You don't earn a gift. A gift comes not because of who you are, but because of who the giver is. You get a gift not because of who you are, but because somebody, somewhere, someone wants to give you a gift. The gift you receive comes not because of you, but because of the giver. We're justified. We're declared just and right in the eyes of God by His grace as a gift. God's love directed towards a, a guilty sinner. God's love and grace and mercy directed to us because of Christ. Our redemption is in Him alone, verse 24. Notice, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're redeemed by His blood. He's bought us back. He paid the debt that you and I owe and satisfied the demands of the law and and the wrath of God in our place. It's through His obedience. It's through His righteousness that we have access to any righteousness. Not of our own, but it's His. And comes to us by grace as a gift from God. 
Surely people have told you, in fact, I've probably already said it this morning, but surely people have told you you're not saved by works, right? I mean, you've heard that, right? You know that, right? You know that's not entirely true. You are saved by works. You absolutely are saved by works. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by the work of Christ. That's the point of verse 24. That's the point that that Paul drives us out of ourselves, out of our wickedness, out of our disobedience, out of our sinfulness, to look for a righteousness because since there's none in me, I have to get it from somewhere else. And he says, there's only one place. And that's through Christ. Salvation is by grace alone. Not by grace plus works. Not grace plus merit. Not grace plus the things you do. Not grace plus you have to add to it. But salvation is by grace alone. Have you heard the, the acronym grace, God's riches at Christ's expense? This passage probably God's righteousness at Christ's expense. And that's Paul's point here. We're saved by grace alone. But I want, you, I want to point you to a word that almost perfectly illustrates this idea of grace. It's a word that it's not one of those, you know, you're in, a, you're in a Presbyterian church. It's not one of those words. It has like multiple syllables and probably ends in an ation or an ication at the end of it. It's not one of those big, long, glorified, churchy words, Christianese words, Presbyterian words. It's a normal, everyday word that you use all the time. Men, promise me I'm not the only one your wife ever look at you and say, does this, look, does this outfit look okay? Does this look good? Does this look right? Does this, is this okay? And, and, and you, you're a, you're a guy, you finally paid enough attention to hear the question the third or fourth time and you kind of gave a, yeah, yeah, that looks great. Not a very convincing. She heard the tone of voice. She heard your inflection. She saw the look on your face, and you're thinking, I didn't know any of those things existed. And she's picking up on all these little signals, and she's not convinced. Does this like make me look? Is this okay? Does this look? Yeah, it looks great. She looks at you, kind of scowls, and, and, and looks at you a little intently, and goes, but. Like she's, like she's expecting there was more to what we were going to say. Or, to turn the tables a little bit, for the guys to have their turn. You know, there's always that moment in high school or college when a girl finally says to a guy they've been dating for a little while and she finally looks at him and says, you know, I, I think you're great. I think you're wonderful. You're a solid Believer, you're a, you're a godly man, and I think you would make a great 
leader in your home one day. I really enjoyed meeting your parents. They're a lot of fun, and I, and I love being around you. But I just want to be friends. You know, we start going, right, hold on a second. You're a great guy. I really enjoyed hanging out with you. I loved meeting your parents. You're a godly man. You're sharp. You're smart. You're witty. You're going to be a great leader one day. See, all of that should add up to, and I would love nothing more than to be your wife. And yet somehow she comes to the conclusion, I just want to be friends. The conclusion, given all the premises that she laid out, makes zero sense. And she connected those two thoughts with a word. But. Verse 21 starts with a but. Given all that Paul has said, quite honestly, from Romans 1.1 to 3.20, we should be crawling under our chairs by the end of verse 20. We should, at that point, be so afraid for our lives because everything he has said adds up to, and you will die. You will pay for this. The way you've committed cosmic treason your entire life. Even the best things you've done were tainted with sin and pride and anger and selfishness. The end of verse 20 should leave us absolutely hopeless. But. But there's righteousness. But you're justified. Not by your works. Because through 320, I haven't found anything that any of us has done remotely right. Remotely righteous. But. God's righteousness. Comes to us as a gift. By grace, through Christ. What does this passage say about salvation? It's by grace alone. Salvation is all of grace. It comes to us by God's grace. And we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't merit it in any way. We don't give enough uh, maybe one day we should try this. You know, the more you give, we'll pass the plate two or three times, and, and the more you give, the more favor you earn from God. Maybe we'll say that one Sunday just so I can get a bunch of money in the offering plate. But that's not what Scripture says. You can't buy heaven. You can't earn salvation. We don't get what we deserve in Christ. In Christ, we get God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Salvation is all of grace. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, and you're thinking to yourself, well, wait, when I get my life in order, 
then I'll come to Jesus. This passage says you'll never get your life in order. You need Christ. Well, but I want to I offer a little bit of goodness, a little bit of righteousness, a little bit of obedience, a little bit of money, a little bit of something. You don't have any, this passage says. Run to Christ. There you find forgiveness in Him and in Him alone. By His grace alone. If you are a believer here this morning, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, this idea of grace alone should drive your worship. It drives the way you sing the next song. It, it, it makes amazing grace that much more amazing. See, if we, if we offer goodness, then we have to stop singing amazing grace and sing pretty good grace. That saved a, a decent guy like me. Grace alone, this, this idea of salvation by grace alone drives your worship, it drives your response to Christ, it drives your thankfulness, it drives your life because it gives you great joy to serve and honor and glorify Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this amazing grace that has saved wretches, worms. Yeah, quite honestly, scum. A holy and righteous God who created us for his own pleasure and glory and we've rebelled against you in thought, word, and deed and stand in need of forgiveness. Father, we pray that we would look not to our own righteousness, not to our, to our own goodness, but you would draw us back again to amazing grace in Christ as a gift that in Him we find forgiveness. And for that we thank you and we praise you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.